Now we come to the second chapter of Nahum. And I trust that you have our notes and outlines before you. You'll find them extremely helpful with this little book. Now we saw the justice and goodness of God demonstrated in his decision to destroy Nineveh and also to give the gospel, that he had a very wonderful future in view for his people, though at the time they were enduring severe judgment from the hands of God. Now we are going to see here in chapters 2 and 3, that is, in the remainder of the book of Nahum, we are going to see the justice and goodness of God exhibited in the execution of his decision to destroy Nineveh. God didn't just talk about it. God did it. And he did destroy this city actually in a very remarkable way. And so we are going to see that as we get into this chapter here. Now, very frankly, this last verse, verse 15 of the last chapter, is really part of the chapter 2 here. In other words, chapter 2 in the Hebrew Bible opens up here with, "...behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts." Perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Actually, this is a message that is directed immediately to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was being carried away into captivity, but it's a message for them also. God had a message that was good news for them, good tidings and it's applicable to the northern kingdom. Isaiah gives this same message, and it applied to the southern kingdom at the time of the Babylonian captivity. Now, this one has in view, that's in Nahum, it has in view the kingdom of Assyria. Now, when Paul quoted it in the 10th chapter of Romans, and that's the section that applies to Israel, it looks to the future. And again, good news will be brought to these people. But that is a worldwide message, and it's applicable to today. So that we're told, "...whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, he shall be saved." But how are they going to hear without somebody bringing a message to them? They've got to be sent. And I believe that God will do the sending. How beautiful are their feet? And it's not because... They have beautiful feet, but they have come to bring the message to them. Now, they may have traveled by boat, or they may have come by plane, but the idea is that they brought the message, and it could be by radio. Now, there are several folk that have said to me, Dr. McGee, you have been emphasizing your foreign broadcasts so much, but don't forget this country. Well, we're not forgetting this country because we believe that the gospel should begin right here at our Jerusalem, my Jerusalem, and that I shouldn't bypass anybody as I go out. And therefore, by radio, we are attempting to continue to reach this country as well as we can. 
and go right to the ends of the earth with it. And we'd love to expand even more if we could get the support. Because, frankly, I want my feet to be beautiful. Not because I've got beautiful feet, because there's one thing about feet, they're not pretty. Our feet need to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, we need to be prepared to take the message out to these folk. There is a spiritual, when I get to heaven, I'm going to walk all over God's heaven. Well, I think it's a great song, and it certainly expressed a great hope in the hearts of those that composed that and sang that in the early days. I don't think it's very applicable today by any means. But, friends, I want to walk all over this earth. That is, by radio. I'm not very good at walking anymore, so I'm anxious to go by this mechanical means. And that's the reason we want to reach out today. So this is a tremendous verse that is interpreted, you see, by Paul in a very wonderful way. And it shows how you can give a spiritual application of Scripture, I should say, rather than interpretation. These two Scriptures have direct interpretation that have two different separate nations in view. But it has an application to the entire world. Now, when we get down into this chapter, we're going to see that in the execution of this judgment, and it's going to be a frightful judgment upon Assyria, and history testifies to it. God makes it very clear here, I'll make thy grave, for thou art vile. In other words, God says, I'm going to bury you. And believe me, this was fulfilled, so that We come here now to Nineveh, and Nineveh is to get the message that judgment is coming. Verse 1 of chapter 2, "...he that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the fortress, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily." Now, again, we have here the Medo-Babylonian forces that came under Syaxares and Nabopolassar that came against Assyria and destroyed it. And it's very interesting that Nahum here tells Assyria, you sure better fortify yourself. I think that's a biting sarcasm myself because the Assyrians spared no one. And they thought that their place was impregnable, that they could withstand any kind of a judgment. Well, God is saying to this nation that you're going to be destroyed. Now, verse 2, "...for the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel, for the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches." This is a detailed prophecy now, which is today an accurate historical record of what really took place at that time. And it speaks of the finality of the judgment of God upon the nation Assyria. It would never make a comeback. Assyria never did make a comeback and never will make a comeback. Babylon will, and also some other nations. But Assyria, one of the great world powers, 
in the ancient world will not make a comeback. God makes that very, very clear. Now, the capture of Nineveh here is described in rather lurid terms to tell the truth. And it reveals how terrible it was. And you could write over this entire passage here. You could write over it, "...whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap." They had been a very brutal nation, one of the most brutal nations that the world has seen. When we were studying the book of Jonah, I called attention at that time to the fact that one of the things the Assyrians did to their enemies was to bury them out in the desert in the sand right up to their neck, up to their chin, and then put a thong through their tongue and leave them out in the hot blazing sun first to go mad and then to die. That was one of the nice little things that the Assyrians came up with. They had several other little surprises for their enemies. And it is said that when the Assyrians were marching, that the enemy ahead would, uh, many places, uh, an entire community would commit suicide rather than fall into the hands of the brutal Assyrians. They were dreaded and feared in the ancient world. And we find here that now they're beginning to move, but now the movement is in another direction. They are no longer the aggressor, but the Medes and the Babylonians are coming up against them. Now, will you notice verse 3? The shield of his mighty man is made red. Now, it was not made red, as some think, with blood. The Assyrians were especially fond of the color of red or scarlet. You will find it, well, in all of their art, in their pictures. That is a color that has been discovered there. And they were very much interested in it. They would make everything red. And some believe that they used copper shields and that in the sunlight, the reflection of copper is red. And actually, that is the thing. And why did they use it? Well, a great many believe that they did it to frighten their enemies. As you well know, that in warfare, you intend to do as much bluffing as you do fighting. You attempt to frighten your enemy as much as you possibly can. You remember when the atom bomb was dropped and First, the warning was given. The Japanese, they actually thought that America was bluffing. And that's one time we were not bluffing, but they did not pay any attention to it at all. Today, we have a great many of those that are using the crying towel, and we are using flagellations on ourselves that we are guilty of this awful thing. Well, we gave ample warning to the enemy and it did bring the war to an end. But I'm very frank to say that as we see working out here in this enemy that was brutal, what they sowed, they reaped. And I don't think we're any different. We happen to be the first one to drop an atom bomb. And I'm not sure that God's going to forget that. That was a frightful thing to do, and I personally feel that our nation shouldn't go in sackcloth and ashes because of it today. I see no reason for that. It was an awful, horrible thing. But after all, war was a very awful, horrible thing. 
and our boys were being slain. We were not winning the war by any means. That was the thing that brought it to a close. And island by island hopping that we were doing in that day just saw the slaughter, in fact, the worst slaughter that we've ever had. And as a result, my feeling is that we were justified in that. But the whole point is that you do attempt to bluff your enemy. And the enemy made the mistake of thinking it was a bluff when we were telling the truth. But that's probably the reason they use red. Now, will you notice it? It says, "...the shield of his mighty man is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet." Again, red color, you see. They had the uniforms that were red. "...the chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of preparation." Now, I think it's because of the armor that was on the chariots and the way that they were built. They were not built of wood like the chariots that you see in the museum down in Egypt. The Egyptians used a great deal of wood in building their chariots. But apparently the Assyrians were the ones that got out the latest model on chariots. They were sort of the general motors of chariot building. And the chariots were like flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. Now, verse 4 is another verse that's going to illustrate to us an interpretation of Scripture, a method that is entirely wrong. For instance, it says, "...the chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one another in the broad ways." They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. Now, this, by the way, reveals here that he's talking about the chariots of the enemy and the chariots of the Assyrians. And it would be probably a battle that would be settled by the enemy using chariots. You see, what happened was that when the enemy came against Assyria, they had a well-defended city. That is, it is said that Nineveh had 1,500 towers, and each one of them was 200 feet high. And Diodorus Siculus, a Greek historian, is the one who gives us that information, by the way. So that Nineveh really was a well-defended city. But at the time of the siege, the Tigris River got up and flooded, and it took out an entire section of the walls. In other words, it did what the enemy could not do, breach the walls of Nineveh, and the enemy was able to come in and penetrated into the city itself, into the city of Nineveh. And then they used the flooding methods that had been for irrigation actually to flood the palace, so that that was the way the enemy was able to take them. And then the breach was so great that the chariots of the enemy could get in and the others. Now, what you have described here is nothing in the world but the chariot battle of that day. Now, there is an interpretation of prophecy today. I deplore it myself. And I regret that at the present hour that we see so much of it. And here is an example of it. 
There are those that say that this is a prophecy of the automobile. Well, Sir Robert Anderson spoke of the wild utterances of prophecy mongers. And we need to recognize that today there's a great interest in prophecy and great world events are taking place, great crises are taking place, and you can become fanatical in this and you can go overboard in it. Winston Churchill said a fanatic is one who can't change his mind and he won't change the subject. And some today are just dwelling on prophecy. And after all, that's a limited subject. And they then become rather fanatical in interpretation. And I heard uh, not long ago an interpretation given that this is a prophecy of the automobile. Now, friends, it has nothing in the world to do with the automobile. And I don't think you can even make that kind of an application of it for the very simple reason that the automobiles don't rage in the streets. To tell the truth, sometimes the drivers do. And when you get tied up in traffic, you can rage. But the automobile doesn't rage. It just manages to stay right there and not move at all. And sometimes when it's time to move, you can't move it if you've got a vapor lock. And they don't jostle once against another in the broad ways. Actually, when one jostles against another one, it means a wreck. And it was on New Year's Eve. I went out to a New Year's Eve service of a friend of mine. A young man had been on my staff when I was pastoring downtown Los Angeles. And I went out to his service because he's a very excellent preacher. And I went out with a friend of mine. And we never saw as many officers, and that was New Year's Eve, out on the freeways here. And there was one wreck after another. Apparently quite a few drunk drivers out that evening. And the important thing is that automobiles just don't jostle one against another. Well, what's he talking about here, jostling? Now, if you have ever been in a museum where they do have some of the Assyrian relics, you have seen on the chariot wheels, that is the hub of the chariot, you have seen a sickle. And it's like a sword or a sickle. And it is an instrument that's very dangerous. It extended out from the wheel and the one driving the chariot would go up as close as he could get to the enemy when he would meet the enemy, and this very sharp instrument would cut off his wooden wheels, for many of them had wooden wheels, you see. And that would put a chariot out of business right away if you could cut off the wheels on one side. And that is the jostling together that is mentioned here. It hasn't anything to do with the automobile. And when it says they'll run like lightnings and they shall seem like torches, well, they, <laughs> they move so fast in that day. Now, for our day, it would be very slow. But the Assyrians had developed the fighting by chariot to a very fine degree. And so the enemy had picked that up. And when they clashed in the broad ways of this city and outside the city, why, the battle was a frightful, horrible thing. And that, my friend, is all that he's talking about here. Now, I believe that you can make a moral 
and spiritual application from the Word of God. But I don't think that you can take this up and interpret it in a literal way for our day. You see what a remarkable book Nahum is? This is another great principle for interpreting the Word of God. Now, when you read that there's going to set out in the future strange slips in that land, don't say they're orange trees, because the orange, that's its natural habitat. The land of Israel, in fact, that whole area, grew oranges way back in the days of Solomon, because when he speaks in the Song of Solomon of dwelling under the apple tree, the apple tree was the orange tree. And as a result, may I say to you that you don't take Scriptures that have an interpretation for a different people at a different time and bring them up to date. May I say to you, that's what I call the same thing that Sir Robert Anderson called the wild utterances of prophecy mongers. So here is another great principle of the interpretation of Scripture. And so what we have here, and I do not want to dwell now too much on details through the remainder of this book, because actually what we have here is a very detailed account and a very vivid description of the actual destruction of Nineveh. And this is prophetic. It was given about a hundred years before the city actually was totally destroyed. So that it's quite a remarkable prophecy that we have before us. And it's one that gives us the detail of the description of the destruction of the city. And it was absolutely total annihilation of the city. So much so that actually it was not until about 1850 that the site of Nineveh was located and excavated. And we knew so little about this place. Now, I want to mention this again, that the little book of Jonah and the book of Nahum go together. Actually, what you have is, first of all, the prophecy of Jonah, or the little book of Jonah, actually not a prophecy, and it is a record, an account, of his missionary activity in the city of Nineveh and that entire area where the total population turned to God. And God spared them. And then a hundred years goes by, and you have the book of Nahum. Now, in my book on Jonah entitled, Jonah Dead or Alive, in it I give a description and an account of the way that this city was excavated, some of the findings that took place there. A great deal was learned about this city of Nineveh and about that civilization at that particular time. Now, when time went by, they departed from the Lord again, and now Nahum is raised up, and his entire message is directed against Nineveh. And what we have here is just an apt description, a very vivid description of the total destruction of the city. Now, I'm going to read verse 5, begin reading there. He shall recount his nobles, 
They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall, and the defense shall be prepared. Now, what he's speaking of here is the destruction of Nineveh. It came about when the Medes came down, Syaxares of the Medes. Babylon at this time was not the greatest kingdom, but they did join with them, and they came down against the city. And we saw last time about the chariots that raged in the street, and it has no reference to any product that General Motors or Henry Ford turns out. But it was probably the late model of chariots in that day that actually had a sickle on the axle on each side so that they could run beside another chariot of the enemy. And most of them had wooden wheels, and all they'd do is just cut them down. And after all, when a chariot loses a wheel, it's sort of like a car that has a flat tire. They're out of the battle at least. And that is what the reference is to here. No prophecy at all for the automobile here. And it's that type of interpretation that brings prophecy into disrepute. Now, he goes on here to describe this total destruction, and he says in verse 6, "...the gates of the rivers shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved." Now, obviously, the Tigris River would be turned into the city. Now, as we said before, it was at this time that the campaign was carried on that the heavy rains in that area and above that area had caused the Tigris River to reach flood stage. And when it did, why, the waters took out actually a section of the wall. And it is said that, well, we're told here it was like a pool of water. If you'll notice that, the gates of the rivers shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. That is, the water will just absolutely bring the palace down. I think that the foundations were swept out, and we are told in profane history that part of the wall was taken out. In fact, about two and a half miles of the wall of Nineveh was right along by the side of the Tigris River. Now, the city was anywhere from 12 to about 30 feet above the river. That is its normal flow. But at flood stage now, it takes out a whole section of the wall, and the enemy was able to enter. In other words, this made the breach that the enemy was attempting to do. It would seem that as if the Lord had cooperated in the destruction of the city. Now, it was a very wealthy city. You see, they had brought the booty from all of the great nations, and even the southern kingdom of Judah was paying tribute. So the city of Nineveh had become a very wealthy city. But now the floodgates have been opened, and even the palace is brought down by the flooding. And we're told that what actually happened there was that the irrigation ditches were open, and the palace was absolutely covered. Now I'm reading verse 7, And it is decreed, She shall be led away captive, she shall be brought up, and her maid shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating upon their breasts. Have you ever seen a flight of doves? If you've ever hunted doves, as I used to do in Texas as a young fella, 
Why, when they take flight, we used to late in the afternoon hunt down near the tank. Today, you'd call them something else other than a tank, but that's what we call them. It was where a dam had been put up, and there was a body of water there used for the watering of cattle. But the birds would come in late in the afternoon. And if you'd come up over the embankment, and you'd be able to get a good shot of the doves, and they'd all take flight. And when they did, it would be like the beating of your chest, the flapping of the wings. And that is the picture that's given to us here. The beating upon their breasts was just like doves taking flight and making the noise that they do, which, by the way, is a mourning noise. That's the reason that they're called a mourning dove. But actually, I understand that mourning is more or less of a love call of the dove. Now, in verse 8, "...but Nineveh is of old like a pool of water." You see, the flood had entered, and the city actually became like a lake. "...yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back." In other words, the command is given to them to hold your ground. But when they saw the floods coming in along with the enemy... Why, they felt it was time not to listen to their commandments, but to turn and run away as fast as possible. Now I read verse 9. Take the spoil of silver. Take the spoil of gold. In other words, the enemy now is being invited to take the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold. For there is no end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture." You see, the city was very wealthy, highly ornate. And actually, the palaces were beautiful. They lived in luxury there because of the success they'd had in warfare. Now, verse 10, she's empty and void and waste. They took out all the booty now, just as Assyria had brought the booty from everywhere else. And it's now in one place, and the enemy comes in and takes it out. And now Nineveh's left empty and void and waste. And the heart melted, and the knees smite together. And when your knees smite together, that means you're afraid. That means that fear is in your heart. And that's what was happening to these people. And much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. In other words, this is a time of great fear and dread because they know that they're hated by the world of that day. All their neighbors hated them, because the Assyrians were known in history as being very brutal. And now vengeance is being taken upon them. And certainly, instead of their blood all being drawn from their faces, they gather blackness. And I take that what is happening is, that they are throwing sackcloth and ashes on their heads. Verse 11, Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, even the old lion, walked and the lions whelped, and none made them afraid? Now, this can refer actually to lions. Both Assyria and Babylon used the lion as the symbol of the empire. It could refer to the actual lions, which they had there, and they did have them. But it could also refer to their 
strong young man, because really the lion was the symbol of the strength of the kingdom. And it could refer to that. But the whole point is, what's happened to them? Whether they're the literal lions or the strength of their army, they're gone. They've left or they've been killed. Verse 12, the lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps and strangled for his lionesses and filled his holes with prey and his dens with torn flesh. But they had been well fed, whether they are a literal lion or whether they're the army. But now all of that's ended. They no longer have anything to eat because all has been taken away by the enemy. Now, God says here in verse 13, "...behold, I'm against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn a chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions." And I take it that, again, this could be either literal or young man. And I believe it refers to their young man, because the lion was the symbol of the nation." And I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. Now, this is a note of finality, and it's a strange expression. A hundred years before, God graciously saved Nineveh when they repented and turned to him. He had said to Jonah in a note of tenderness, he says, Shall I not spare Nineveh? that great city, the city that's turned to him. And God will save. But now, time has marched on, and they have lapsed into an awful apostasy. And now God is going to judge them. And he says something here that he only said against Gog and Magog. And many of us believe that in the 38th and 39th of Ezekiel, that what we have there is Russia, modern Russia. And that is, I think, by conservative scholarship, pretty much today established. In fact, the matter is, no one but a liberal who disregards facts and evidence would even say that it did not refer to Russia, modern Russia today. Now, God says against Russia, I'm against you. Here we have a pattern put down for us. Russia had had the gospel. Actually, they had had it before we did. And here is a people that had had a messenger from God there, and they had turned to the living God. But now they've turned away from him. When you've had the light and you reject the light, the Lord Jesus put it like this. He said, if the light in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words... If the light is shining right into your eyes and you say, I can't see, then that means you're blind. That young man that we tell about that was in a mine explosion together with other men. And they got to them as quickly as they could, taking away all of the wreckage and debris between those on the outside and these trapped miners. And when they got to them, the first thing they did was to get over an electric cord so they could make the connection, and the light came on. And this young man stood there after the light came on and said, why don't they turn on the light? And everybody looked at him in amazement because they knew then 
the explosion had blinded him. But you see, as long as he was in darkness, nobody could tell it. In fact, he couldn't tell it. He thought the lights had gone out. But now, if the light in you be darkness, how great is the darkness? Well, it means you're blind. And that is the picture that you have here. These people had had light. They had rejected light. And when you reject light, your responsibility is greater. And so God says, Behold, I'm against thee. Now, he doesn't say that very often. He only says it here, and he said it to Gog and Magog, and we believe Russia. And when we hear today about how communism has opposed God, it's atheistic, of course. Its basic philosophy is that they are opposed to God. Well, God beat them to the draw. God said long before they appeared, he says, I'm against you. And here he says, Behold, I'm against thee. Now, he's talking about Nineveh. And he says here, And I'll burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. This is absolute, total destruction, and there's a note of finality in what God says here. I'm against you. I'm bringing you down. I'll annihilate you. You'll not appear again. That ought to be a message today for those that have turned their backs completely upon God. It means total judgment. Now, let's get in underway here in this third chapter. And actually, the subject of the third chapter is the avenging action of God justified. That is, we have here really the cause of the destruction of the city. That is the heading that the New Schofield Reference Bible gives and I go along with it because I'd already had it in my notes in a little different language for years. The avenging action of God justified. In other words, he does give the cause, but he justifies God in the destruction of this city. And this is an example of the fact that whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And that's true of a nation. You find out that God deals actually with individuals and nations in many ways in a very similar manner. Now, notice what we have in the first verse. We have a picture here, and it describes actually the internal condition of the city. And lies mark the total culture of the city. And they also made slaves, as we'll see in these two verses now. And I should also call attention to the fact that many literary critics have found in this third chapter one of the most vivid descriptions of the destruction of a city that is imaginable. And you will not find anything in any language more descriptive than this. He begins like this in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Nahum. Woe to the bloody city! It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses 
and of the bounding chariots. Not jumping chariots. This is not a jumping jack that you have here. But the picture is very vivid. It's a bloody city. Nineveh, as the capital of Assyria, this nation was known in the ancient world as being very brutal and very bloody. They were feared and dreaded, as we said at the beginning, by other nations. And when a city found themselves in the pathway of the coming of the army of the Assyrians, just like a hurricane, although they actually move rather slowly, but they certainly did devour as they moved. An entire community would commit suicide. And I have gone into some detail in my book on Jonah, and we're making it available again for this little book for those who would like to pursue the study further and would like to have a part with us in this broadcast. But I will not go into a great deal of detail other than to say here that you have a very vivid description of the city now. It's full of lies. Now, what better description would you have today in our country right now? I feel very much like we are given very little fact, but we're given a great deal of propaganda. And that not only pertains to Washington and the news media, but it comes from every area, actually, Even news today is propaganda. Even anything that comes out of Washington, regardless of what party it is, if you want to know my opinion of the two-party system today, we have Tweedledum and Tweedledee. And you can pick them. If you come from the section of the country I come from, you're a Democrat. That is, that was your background. But when I got to California, I found out I thought I needed to change. And now that I found out I needed to change, I need to change again, not back to where I came from, but to be free of this thing today, of where I'm fed nothing in the world but propaganda and never given the truth. One thing that's needed today is the truth. One of the reasons God judged this city, Nineveh, was full of lies and robbery. And today... Your things in your home are not safe. I was in the home of some friends in Louisville, Kentucky, and they're very lovely folk, and will have a very lovely southern home there, and they have some beautiful antiques. And do you know that they have had to put bars, double locks, triple locks on the doors of their home? Where do you think we live today? We live in a nation, we say, of law and order, but it hasn't been that. What an apt description. When I first began to study this, I asked Nam, I said, who are you talking about, us? You're giving a vivid description, maybe of Nineveh, but it's a picture of our own nation. And as we've said, this little book and the book of Jonah reveal that God deals with Gentile nations, and he did back in the Old Testament and that the government of God moves in the government of man today. And God will overrule the sin of man. He will overrule a nation. And you come down through history and great civilizations after another, like crumbling in the dust and the debris of the ages. Why? 
Because God judged them, friends. That's the reason why. And we are no pet of God. We're not something special. We think we are as a nation. And we can boast of the fact right now we're the strongest nation in the world. But you know that might even be questioned today. And we live in a security that may be a false security because God brings great nations down. And he brings them down as he says here. And the next book we get is really going to open our eyes to something that I think ought to alarm us today. But now, will you notice, he goes on to give this vivid description of these chariots. They're like tanks. They were tanks of the ancient world. And they came inside the city. And as they did, the noise of the whip. You can hear the driver whipping up his horses. And you can hear the noise of the rattling of the wheels. My, you can hear them as they come in and of the prancing horses and of the bounding chariots. The chariots can't come in. They're leaping over everything, especially dead bodies. Now, will you notice, as this description continues, and these first two verses describe the internal condition of the city. Lies and robbery mark the culture and the climate of the city. And they also made slaves, as we shall see. Verse 3, "...the horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear." And there's a multitude of slain, and a great number of carcasses, and there is no end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. Now, the dead that are there seems unbelievable. And I tell you, if a well-placed bomb is dropped somewhere in this country today, we'll see probably the same sort of thing. And do you know that there are nations today that may pretend to be friendly, they wouldn't hesitate five seconds to drop that bomb on this country if they thought they could get by with it. And I'm beginning to think that they believe they can get by with it. Now you have here that which characterizes the external condition of the city. They were a brutal and cruel enemy. And here you have this picture that is given here. That's in the third verse. And actually, in the fourth verse, they are now reaping what they have sown. Now, verse 4, another remarkable verse that we have here. Because of the multitude of the harlotries of the well-favored harlot. This city is likened unto a harlot. And she was the one that they all played up to. The mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her harlotries and families through her witchcrafts. Now, there are several things I'd have you note there. One is the shame of this city. It's likened unto a harlot. And since God likens it to a harlot, a well-favored harlot, it's a harlot that all the world in that day courted her. And we have here, she was the mistress of witchcrafts. And that's mentioned twice. We are told that the nations would sell themselves through her witchcrafts. And that word is repeated twice. This is the occult. Don't for one moment say that the idolatry of the ancient world was meaningless. Paul called an idol a nothing. 
that is nothing to an idol. But back of the idol is Satan, and back of idolatry was that which was satanic. Now, I don't need to labor this point today. If you are not acquainted with what is happening in the world of the occult, then you haven't been to Southern California. And it's not taking place down with a bunch of down-and-outers and a bunch of criminals or the underworld. This thing happens on college campuses today, and it's taking place in the best sections of our city, giving over to witchcraft. And it's amazing how many people today will go to the five and ten cent store to get their horoscope, and they follow that. Many carry all kinds of amulets, good luck pieces, charms, and little dolls and that sort of thing. That is growing today by leaps and bounds in a materialistic age and a culture that thought it had graduated from that sort of thing. And now we find there is a return to that. Now, that's exactly what this great city had turned to. And God says, I'm justified in judging the city because of that. And he calls the city a harlot. Now you find that when you come to the end of this age, that the church, the organized church, will become a harlot, engaging in this sort of thing. And I'm of the opinion that you're seeing a movement in that direction. All of this is very dangerous. In fact, a man who is a very fine Pentecostal preacher, and he preaches the Word of God. He believes in tongues. He believes in healings. But he said to me that he's expressing today a real danger in the tongues movement. He says that not only does our group have it, but these that are in the occult are having it. And he says we today in our church are being very careful about this sort of thing. I think that is quite amazing, and this is an enlightened man, and I mean spiritually enlightened, and he's rather reluctant to engage in this sort of thing. And I'd put up a warning to you today, friends, just because the thing seems to have the mark of the supernatural on it, you better examine it very carefully and see whether it is scriptural. If it's supernatural and not scriptural, it's not a god, and there's only one other fellow that's in the business of the supernatural except God, and that is Satan. Satan will ape him and imitate him in every way that he possibly can. So that you have here the reason God is justifying his action in destroying this city. Now, he makes this statement in verse 5. He says, "...behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts." And I will uncover thy skirts from thy face, and I will show the nation thy nakedness, and the kingdoms thy shame. Now, he says, I'm against thee. This is the second time that he said that. And this is the thing, you remember, that God says against Gog and Magog in the 38th, 39th of Ezekiel, and we believe that refers to Russia. Definitely so, I think, without a shadow of a doubt. When I graduated from seminary, I would not accept that 38th and 39th referred to Russia. And I decided on my own I'd make a study of it, and I did. And those of you that have our notes 
on Ezekiel know that I went into a great deal of detail. There's a threefold reason why I'm confident that it is Russia that's mentioned there. Now, there's a nation that wasn't even in existence in Ezekiel's day. God said, I'm against you. Well, we know now why. Atheistic. Now, here is a nation that God says, I'm against you. But not because they're atheistic, but they're polytheistic. And this nation was given over to idolatry. But back of the idol was the occult. Back of the idol was this that was witchcraft. And witchcraft has become a reality today. And men are finding that there is a reality to it. And it's those in the upper echelons that are making the discovery of it. I wonder, and I don't know that a study has ever been made, but I've been told on rather good authority, and when I say good authority, from those that are in Washington, that it would be very amazing and alarming the number there that appeal to fortune tellers, to the horoscope, and to this same type of thing of trying to interpret the future. Men want to know the future. Now, God says, I'm against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And then he says, I'm going to uncover thy skirts from thy face. Now, today, in this day of nudeness, and when they, with their tongue and their cheek, try to call it art, to present that which is salacious and very sinful and very suggestive, and they call it art, but they got the tongue in their cheek when they say that. The display of the nude today, and now both women and men. But in that day, this civilization had sunk pretty low, but not as low as we have. They did not display the human body. They were not given over to that. In other words, it was a disgrace for a woman to be displayed nude. And now God speaks of the shame that he's going to bring on Nineveh. He says, I will uncover thy skirts from thy face. That is, I'm going to pull your skirt up over your face. You've been a harlot, and I'm going to reveal you in all of the lurid details. And believe me, that was a real disgrace. He says, I will show the nations thy nakedness, and the kingdoms thy shame. That's what God says I'll do for you. Now, Assyria went down, friends, a great nation, a great civilization, with its riches and with all of its power. It went down into the dust, never to rise again. God said, that's what he would do to it. And he says, and I will cast abominable filth upon thee, and make thee vile, and I will set thee as a gazing stock. That's verse 6. In other words, God says, I'm going to bring you down, and God says, I'm opposed to you, and I will expose you to the world for what you are. And the excavations that brought to light this great civilization reveal that all of this is quite accurate. Only this just happens to be a vivid description and a prophecy given long before that it actually took place. This is something that is quite amazing. Now, all of the description that's given here was something I just did not want to pass over lightly because it has such a tremendous application 
for us today. And it's such an apt picture of this present day, and it reveals God's method in dealing with the nations of the world. And I don't think he's changed his method. And if he hasn't, we're in trouble, friends. And I mean deep trouble. We ought to pray for our nation. Now, God has used some very strong language here in describing this city. He called this city a harlot. And that he was going to absolutely display the shame and all of the filth and the vileness of this great civilization and make it a gazing stock to the world. And that was the end of the great Assyrian Empire. Now, we find here in verse 7, "...and it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemourn her? Where shall I seek comforters for her?" In other words, God says, "...where in the world will I get people to come and mourn over this city?" Nobody will mourn over it. Nobody will weep over it. There'll be no mourners there. It is a very sad situation and a very sad one indeed. I know that here in Southern California, one of the saddest experiences that I had as a pastor was to be called by a funeral home, and several of them here in Pasadena became my very personal friends over the years, and they would call me to come in and conduct a funeral. And I never shall forget one funeral that I had of a dear old man that had died. And this man actually was a Christian, but he had come out here from the east with his wife for her health, and she had died, and he became bedridden, and people forgot about him. And when he died, why... I guess many even didn't recognize his name. And when I went down to conduct the funeral, wasn't anybody in there. Nobody came. To me, it was the saddest thing. So I went in, and I knew the funeral director pretty well, and I got him up, and I said, you get all your office force and come on in there. We're going to have a funeral service. And they rounded up everybody around there that they could and brought them in. And we had about a dozen, so I brought a message message of hope for a Christian and a gospel right over his remains to be able to say Jesus died for our sins and he rose again for our justification. But it was sad to have a funeral service like that, to have no one attend. Well, God says there are not going to be any mourners at the funeral of Nineveh. The whole world actually will rejoice in that day, which they did. And God brought them down, this great city. And when God said this, who would have believed it? Unless you'd believe God, you would have to accept it by faith. But it came to pass just as God said it would come to pass. Now will you notice what he says in verse 8? Art thou better than populous Noaman? And Noaman was what we understand as Thebes. That was the great capital of Upper Egypt. Several of the pharaohs reigned up there. Fact of the matter is, let me finish this. 
And then I want to give you a quotation from a very fine Bible expositor. I'm reading now all of this verse. He says here, verse 8 now, "...art thou better than populous Noahman?" That is, of Thebes that was situated among the rivers, and rivers is used as plural for a great deal of water. When the Nile River would overflow at the flood season, it looked like an ocean, by the way, that had the waters about it, whose rampart was the sea, and her wall was from the sea, so that actually this city was so built that at the flood season, this city would not be flooded out at all. And you remember they had to move all of this when that dam was put across the Nile River. I would like now to read this. This is an excerpt from Dr. Charles Feinberg's book on the little prophecy of Nahum, and I can certainly heartily recommend it. Unfortunately, when the last edition of my Through the Bible, Briefing the Bible, was published, we didn't get his books on the Minor Prophets in, but I certainly would want to include them, for they're very excellent, and I know of none that are any better than his. Now, God says to Nineveh that this city of Thebes should have been an example to the Assyrian Empire because they were the ones who had destroyed Thebes. And Thebes was a great city, a city that seemed impregnable, that no one could take it. But the Assyrians did take it, and they destroyed it. Now, that should have been an example because even at that time, God had judged Thebes, you see. And this again reveals that the government of God moves among the governments of man in this world today, and that God is moving. And we're going to see that in the next little book that we'll be taking up, by the way. Now, will you notice this excerpt that I want to read from Dr. Feinberg's book on Nahum? I'm reading now. It was the capital city of the pharaohs of the 18th to the 20th dynasties and boasted such architecture as the Greeks and Romans admired. The Greeks called it Diospolis because the Egyptian counterpart of Jupiter was worshipped there. It was located on both banks of the River Nile. On the eastern bank were the famous temples at Karnak and Luxor. Homer, the first Greek poet, spoke of it as having 100 gates. Its ruins cover an area of some 27 miles. Ammon, the chief god of the Egyptians, was shown on Egyptian relics as a figure with a human body and a ram's head. The judgment of this godless and idolatrous city was foretold by Jeremiah. And that's in Jeremiah 46:25, and in Ezekiel, the 30th chapter, verses 14 to 16. No Ammon. Our Thebes was situated favorably among the canals of the Nile, with the Nile itself as a protection. The Nile appears as a sea when it overflows its banks annually. Nineveh can read her fate in that of Noamon, for she is no better than the mighty Egyptian capital. 
But you see, God here is justifying the fact that he's judging this city, you see. Now, I want to read on. Verse 9, Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was unlimited. Put and Lubin were thy helpers. And this P-U-T here was also in that area, and so was Lubin for that matter. In fact, this Lubin is mentioned here in the first chapter of Nahum. In other words, this city and Thebes, the capital of the Egyptian empire one time, never felt it could ever fall because there's a big desert on both sides. The River Nile actually was a protection. There were allies in the north and in the south. And how could anybody get to them? Well, the Assyrians did. Now, actually, the Assyrians felt like they were impregnable in that day. Now, today, we feel that we have enough of the atomic weapons and other sophisticated hardware that we can defend ourselves. But my friend, when God's time comes, we'll go down, and our best defense today just doesn't happen to be in that area. Our best defense today in this country is a return to God, is a recognition of Him in government today. I'm not impressed by what I see in Washington. They have a little prayer breakfast, and then they step outside, and I'm told and cuss like sailors some of these men do that pretend to be Christians today. And Men make a profession of being Christians, and then their language is so vile that you can't even listen to it. May I say to you, what a hypocrisy there is today. Now, is God going to let us off today? Are we something special? I think not. And our defense would be men of character again. Actually, if they're not Christian, at least they espouse the great morality that the Word of God espouses. You see that that is the thing that built our nation. I'm not greatly impressed by some of our founding fathers. I don't think Thomas Jefferson was a Christian at all. But I'll say this, he had respect for the Word of God. He believed in the morality of the Word of God. And this idea today of despising it, in fact, of contradicting it today, God can't bless us as a nation, and I don't think he will. Now, will you notice, verse 10, God says here, Yet was she carried away, she went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets, and they cast lots for her honorable man, and all her great men were bound in chains. Now, that's what Assyria, that's what Nineveh had done to Thebes. Now, chickens are coming home to roost. Be not deceived, God's not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. Now, verse 11, Thou also shall be drunk, thou shall be hidden, thou also shall seek strength because of the enemy. They're going to try to fortify their courage by getting drunk. But that's not going to help them a bit. Now, he says, All thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, 
they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. Now, if you know anything about growing figs, I used to have a fig tree in my yard. All you had to do when the figs were ripe, you could just touch a branch, and they'd all come tumbling down. And that's what he says here, that all your defenses are like that. The minute the enemy comes, why, he's going to break right through them. Verse 13, Behold thy people, in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. Now, the fact is here that the men were acting like women. I believe that is the thought. And the men are very womanly, let's say. Or it could mean that actually women were the ones in position of authority. Now, I know I'll get reaction to this, but I don't mind. Frankly, I don't think God is for this women's lib movement. I still believe that woman's place is the home. And I feel very frankly that the church today is at fault in using women in too many offices in the church. A woman's first place is not to teach a Sunday school class in the Sunday school, but she's to raise her own family. That's her place. And women are taken away from their homes today in church work and every other kind of work. And unless she's forced to work for a living, a husband is passed on or he's unable to work, why, I don't believe that it's justified. Now, believe me, will I hear from that. But I'm saying it because I think that's the mark of the downfall and the disintegration of a civilization is when this happens. Now, he says in verse 14, "...draw thee waters for the siege, fortify thy strongholds, go into clay, and tread the mortar, make strong the brick kiln." In other words, at the last minute they get busy, they try to make brick to fortify themselves, and they heat up the water. You know, the way they did it, get to the top of the wall, and they get a great big bucket of scalding water, and you pour that on the fellow that's scaling your wall, he's through scaling, I can assure you that. He'll be find himself back down on the ground. Verse 15, There shall the fire devour thee, the sword shall cut thee off. It shall eat thee up like the canker worm. Make thyself many like the canker worm. Make thyself many like the locust. In other words, you try to bring in reinforcements, not going to help you. Verse 16, Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The canker worm spoileth and flieth away. You see, each year their national product grew and there were great merchants, but all that's over now. Verse 17, Thy princes are like the locusts, thy captains like the great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges in the cold day. But when the sun ariseth, they flee away, and their place is not known where they are. In other words, the leaders, when the time came, they managed to escape. That is, for a while anyway. Now, verse 18. Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people are scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathereth them. In other words, the leadership of the nation had disintegrated to the place where they no longer attempted to lead the nation. 
Now, may I say this, and I hope that I'm not misunderstood, because I'm not discussing politics, and certainly not from any party viewpoint, because as far as I'm concerned, I'm disgusted with both. Now, may I say this, that I believe that one of the great evidences of our disintegration and deterioration as a nation is the lack of leadership that there is on a national level, a state level, a county level, a city level, and even a community level today. There is lack of real leadership. It just seems today that the one with the big mouth and the big talk is the one. And the rich man. Lincoln could never run for president here today. He wouldn't have enough money to run. And God says that's the thing that brought down Assyria among these other things that he's mentioned. And believe me, you can just fit this down on our nation, what God has said in this third chapter, just like a glove. One glove fits Assyria, and that's been fulfilled. The other glove fits the United States. But are we listening to God today? No. No one's paying any attention to speak of, certainly among the leadership of the nation today. And the tragedy of the hour is our retreat from God today and our rejection of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, the Savior of the world. Now, listen to God's final word. And he gives this with a note of finality, a note of dogmatism. May I say to you, this is a word that makes your spine tingle, and it's frightening. I read the last verse now. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the report of thee shall clap the hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? You see, these people here had sinned and sinned and sinned that it was a way of life with them. When they now want to point the finger and say God is wrong and that God permits evil and that God does nothing about evil, God says, I do do something about evil. And that you can look around you today at the injustices, and there are many of those. But my friend, God's doing something about them. And the next little book, Habakkuk, is going to bring out that point. God was just and righteous, and he was a God of love, even when he destroyed Nineveh and wiped it like a dish off of the face of the map and off of the face of the earth. They disappeared, and God took full responsibility for their judgment. Now, next time, we're going to see Habakkuk. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved.